walking through shadows and light with the moon this morning. Working through the day with our meditation practice here and there. Continuing the pilgrimage, always on the pilgrimage. What's a pilgrimage? Don't know, not certain. When exploring our lives with that kind of spirit, means we haven't got so much of a plan. How do we respond to what comes up? Yeah. The Sanskrit word for meditation is bhavana. It means to cultivate or to develop. We're in the midst of that, yeah. It's purposeful, and it's befriending ourselves. We learn so much of ourselves when we sit sit still and (laughs) experience ourselves. It's cultivating uh, a way of being that's calm, mostly, embodied, spacious, and present moment focused. And those intermingle through the whole day and even in the night. We are gradually training this body-mind organism to engage skillfully with whatever is here now. The skills we develop, attention, relaxation, is needed. Alertness, compassion, and embodied presence. Here, in our Sangha, our greater Sangha, we qualify the word wadu, H-W-A-D-U, wadu. You've heard it, I think. It's something like koan, but it's not exactly. And we qualify it to include all forms of meditation practice. So we're all doing wadu practice in its various aspects. So sometimes keto chanting or some kind of chanting could be our practice. Sometimes prostrations. All all of the things that we do are under the term wadu practice. And what makes this wadu practice come to life is a true and sincere heart. 
just really truly want to be doing this and see what, what I can do for myself and others. And also the unknowing mind. And I talked with you about this other times. The sense of not holding the um, reifying things, but just really not sure, uncertain. Remember the Chinese would greet each other. I'm uncertain, each would say to the other. And it leaves so much room for creativity and who knows what because we haven't got a reified approach. Hello, here's what I'm doing right now. Yeah. So that unknowing mind is so important to open up our Buddha essence. And my own experience says to me that embodiment is really important part of meditation practice. The Buddha said in one uh, in one place, in one of the scriptures, that all that there is to be learned is within our own six-foot body, fathom-length body, he said. All of it, you know? And we hear about the super-information highway that's outside of ourselves, and we get trapped sometimes in thinking that's where it is. And the Buddha said, no. It's right here, this body. And so our meditation practice is really much involved with the body and learning from uh, an information, of highway information that comes to us from our body when we pay attention. It's interesting, once the Buddha was asked, you know, where do all these teachings come from? You know, they, they weren't just handed to him and memorized them and told us. It came to him from his own experience with his own body and also with all the people around him. So if you look at the Dhammapada, it's, got, it's full of teachings about purity, about mischief, about choices, all of these things. And there's another book that's about all the stories that happened, that the Buddha was part of, and then he gleaned wisdom from that. So it just didn't come out of somehow his talking head. It came from his interrelationships in his life. So we're, we have to start like that too. And that's what the meditation practice really gets down to. Everything that we need to know, we can access from within ourselves and ourselves in situations. So in a way, we're building up our own scriptures. Life is a source of scriptures as we learn from it as we encounter it. Pretty special, eh? Yeah. Yeah. You have to think, well, where did I think it was all coming from, you know? <laughs> uh, when I um, trained to be a yoga teacher, I learned, you know, that where did all these yoga postures come from? It was because the yogis watched the animals. So you get the cobra pose, so you get the, the crow and all kinds of different poses. Watch nature. 
And all of them, the asanas, came from that observation. So I would like to uh, share another story with you, Um, because uh, this story is full uh, of um, a woman learning meditation. And it's about a little bit about her life. And it's about this book. It's kind of a wadu book. It says Zen Koans, but it's kind of it's a wadu. That's a Korean way of looking at it. Bring me the rhinoceros by John Tarrant, and he's really uh, uh, one of my favorite Buddhist teachers for working with wadus. So here's um, a story, and I'm going to have to read it to you till I get it memorized. So first of all, the case, and then the story that comes from the case. Here's the case. The woman at the inn. There was a woman who kept the pilgrims inn at Hara under Mount Fuji. Her name is unknown, and is not known where she was born or died. She went to hear a talk by Hakuin, who said, They say there's a pure land where everything is only mind and that there's a Buddha of light in your own body. Once that Buddha of light appears, mountains, rivers, earth, grass, trees, and forests suddenly glow with a great light. To see this, you have to look inside your heart, your body. Then what should you be looking out for? When you are looking for something that is only mind, what kind of special features would it have? When you are... When you are looking for the Buddha of infinite light in your own body, how would you recognize it? When she heard this, the woman said, This isn't so hard. Back at home, she meditated day and night, holding the question while she was awake and and during her sleep. One day, as she was washing a pot, she had a sudden breakthrough. She threw the pot aside and rushed to see Hakuin. She said, I've met Buddha in my own body and everything on earth is shining with a great light. It's wonderful. She danced for joy. Is that so, said Hakuin. But what about a pit of shit? Does it also shine with a great light? The woman ran up and slapped him. She said, you still don't get it, you old fart. (laughs) Hakuin roared with laughter. (laughs) So that's a little story. And then it goes on in more detail. A woman ran the inn at a station on the pilgrimage route at Hara, a village under Mount Fuji. No one remembers her name, but she had a great awakening in her own kitchen. 
Her eyes looked directly at you, and she made up her own mind about things. Both men and women felt at ease in her company. Her turn of thought was practical, and she liked to cook, clean, sew, and do. Every year, she salted plums. She made vinegar out of persimmons from her old trees. She cut up radishes and cucumbers and put them in pickle jars, adding vinegar, spices, and seaweed that she gathered. She enjoyed the smell of rice cooking and the vigor of steam. In autumn, there were pears. In late autumn, chestnuts. Very embodied. Light seeped through the paper windows. The old brown wood wrapped around her like the fabric of a well-worn kimono, and she was happy. That's wrong, yeah, and she was happy. This was the point of being human, she thought, to have her hands inside the world, moving its colors and shapes. Her children grew and her life unfolded, placid, then shocking, then placid again. A son died of tuberculosis. A daughter sang beautifully. When travelers tied on their sandals in the mornings, they departed in the stories they had come from, and sometimes she longed to step into a story herself. Her thoughts went to, out to Edo, as Tokyo was then called, and even to Holland, home of the foreigners who were allowed only onto an island in the harbor of Nagasaki to trade. So she was thinking of pilgrimages going out. One year, there was a cold spell, and the life she had known began passing from her, like autumn leaves. She didn't know why. Perhaps her older children growing up and leaving home left a void. Perhaps there was no reason. In any case, the plum blossom stepped back behind an invisible barrier, so they didn't pierce her heart that year. Slights enraged her. She woke fuming in the small hours. When a guest asked her for a small service, she told her, get it yourself. Her husband worried about soldiers breaking down the doors and about a, a killing at another station up the road, but she was inclined to laugh. Sometimes she felt so much that she could, she felt so much that she could hardly breathe. Her husband thought it might be grief over the loss of their son. But it wasn't grief. If she had known a spell to undo her pains, she wouldn't have said it. What she felt was not an accident. She'd always known that sooner or later she would have to face such a moment. She knew about the poet Vasho, a wanderer who walked the Tokaido Road 50 years before. When she opened one of his books, the first thing she read was a poignant account. Basho had come across a two-year-old running along the highway in distress, crying and hungry. The child's family couldn't feed another mouth and then turned him loose until his life should vanish like the dew. Basho wrote, I threw him some food from my sleeve as I passed. And he wrote this poem too as a gravestone. You've heard a monkey shriek 
for this abandoned child, what is the autumn wind like? The poem released something in the innkeeper. She hugged her breast and felt the cry in her own body. She thought that although she didn't want to go down the road her guests took, a journey was definitely called for. As she went about her work, she listened for a voice, a direction. The inn had one treasure, a piece of calligraphy with a character for long life, given to someone by the local Zen teacher, an eccentric named Hakuan. The writing was beautiful, though amazingly rough, and she felt alive when she looked at it. The person who understands that roughness, she thought, might know what is happening to me. When she went to hear the old man, the hall was packed, and he made her laugh. He turned out, it turned out that he was famous, though not apparently pious. She began meditating a bit, sitting and breathing or concentrating on washing the endless dishes that made up an innkeeper's life. This meditation didn't seem to be a new direction, but perhaps it was a condition for a new direction. She found a little more space between her thoughts. The trees began to step near again, and she calmed down for a while. But she knew that it was a temporary lull and that her journey, not yet begun, waited inside her. Hakuan's talks were a mixed bag. They confused her. She went to sleep. She grew sullen and argumentative. Her skin itched. Hakuan gave advice to great ladies and local lords, to samurai, fishermen, and rice planters. But it didn't sound like advice. He said things like, straight away the rhinoceros of doubt fell down dead and I could hardly bear my joy. <laughs> he had a lot of experiences <laughs> like that. Sometimes he talked as roughly as a soldier and ranted about something that annoyed him, a rival teacher say. He had a high-spirited mode too and one thing he said went straight to her heart. They say there's a pure land where everything is only mind and that there's a Buddha of light in your own body. Once that Buddha of light appears, mountains, rivers, earth, grass, trees and forests suddenly glow with a great light. To see this, you have to look inside your own heart. Then what should you be looking out for? then what should you be looking out for? When you are looking for something that is only mind, what kind of special features would it have? When you are looking for the Buddha of infinite light in your body, how would you recognize it? The Buddha of light wasn't interesting to Hakuin's funding sources, but he was someone the poor country people prayed to for good rice harvest, for freedom from bandits, for children and grandchildren, and for lower taxes. For the innkeeper, the words were spoken just to her. She said to her, herself, this isn't so hard. 
She had finally discovered a wish that had been secret even from herself. She wasn't confused any longer, and she didn't try to think through what Hakwa meant. She just wanted to spend time with the wadu, the koan, that she had to work with her heart. She had to work with her heart. She had to work with this body, this heart. She told her family, I feel that happiness is as near as my skin. And she brought Hakuin's word to mind when she was awake and even during her sleep. Inside your own heart, trees shine with great light. The words accompanied her everywhere. Her husband asked if she'd become a fanatic, but she wasn't in the mood for jokes. This isn't about you, she murmured, and he knew that she was right. After that, he tried not to get in the way and to help unobtrusively. He hoped that she would find what she was looking for. Meanwhile, if the trees emanated a light, she certainly couldn't see it. But gradually, she began to feel a connection with the things around her. A wooden rice bucket quivered with life. The doorway made a perfect doorway. <laughs> At birth, she had been given a doll made just for her, and as a child, she believed that her doll danced at night. She could never catch it dancing, but in the morning, it was more alive. The rice bucket was like that. Whenever she looked, it had just stopped dancing. <laughs> this connection wasn't really a light, but wasn't not a light either. But we're not going around looking for lights. We're looking for something that's really like a connection. And it's being described in this way. Yeah. One day, as she was washing a pot, everybody's done that, some people a lot, <laughs> she had a breakthrough. Breaking through into what? Into where? She had washed thousands of pots, but her life was in this one. She was just scrubbing, actually, when she completely forgot herself, forgot her, her chapped hands and her wet clothes and what kind of thoughts she was having. There are dreams so deep that on waking, the dreamer can't at first remember her name or where she is or even what she is. It was like that for her. The walls, the bowls, and her own hands were utterly strange and new. The moment had no end, and she didn't know which of her worlds was the dream. She saw daylight coming out of the bottom of the pot and reasoned carefully to herself that this couldn't be true. The sunlight wasn't just in the pot. When she looked around, everything was bright. The paper screens, the tatami mat floor, the sound of a harness jingling outside, the smell of daylight. That was a particular feature of her change of heart. She saw things glowing with light. It was as if they had a song of their own and that the song was light. She began to laugh and couldn't hold it back. 
Her youngest child came in to stare at her enthusiastically, wondering if she had gone mad. But the woman's laughter set her moving out of the kitchen at a run. She tossed the pot aside and rushed to see Hakuin. She couldn't wait to tell someone who understood. By the time she got to his place, she had settled into a jog. Hakuin happened to be sitting on the steps outside his room, looking at nothing in particular. Ever done that? (laughs) As soon as she saw him, she began waving her arms as if words would bridge the gap that was still to be covered. She shouted, hey, and started babbling. I've met Buddha in my own body. Everything is shining with a great light. It's fabulous. It occurred to her then as she ran that she could test each thing she saw against her happiness. She could test digging the ground on a cold morning, and the happiness was there. She could test her sorrow over her lost child, and when she did, she felt the warmth of her love for him, and then his life seemed complete. Brightness fell about her. She tested an angry soldier. Fine. She tested a dark, bent cypress. Each thing she saw had become without flaw. She looked at Hakuin's face and saw the creases of age along with the amusement that often seemed close to the surface with him. The light was in him too. She danced with joy. Hakuin had the general attitude, if you had seen one enlightenment, you've seen them all. (laughs) But he liked what was irrepressible, including this woman. He stopped looking at nothing in particular. She felt him open to her and meet her delight with his. He came straight at her, at her. Is that so? But what about a pit of shit? Does it also shine with a great light? Heading back to the original story. She jumped up and down like a child. A test, a test. It was a test she had just given herself. Of course, of course, she thought. Even shit gives off light. There's nothing that doesn't. And he pretends that he doesn't see. She enjoyed Hakuin's mind so much that she went up to him and slapped him and said, you still don't get it, you old fart. Her thoughts were not really thoughts. They just appeared without her intending them. Ever had that happen to you? (laughs) Yeah. Her thoughts were not really thoughts. They just appeared without her intending them. They formed themselves a little like this. I see you, I see you. So does my slap. Give off light. Hakuin roared with laughter. Okay, so there's... There's more in this, but then there's a little commentary by John, which I'll read a little bit for you because there's quite a few more pages. The woman's discoveries were about her own nearness to things. And I, 
I see that all the time for myself and also when I watch others. But do we actually see it ourselves? If you have empathy with someone, you join them for a moment. You have the same heart. If you have the same heart as someone, you know their name. If you assume that there really is a light in your own kitchen, then you probably notice that sometimes you can see it. Sometimes nothing is needed and you are not afraid of any happiness. When you can't see the light in your own kitchen, could it be because you are making things small, measuring life in coffee spoons? Buddha's question to himself, are you afraid of this happiness, implies that we can be afraid of happiness. Happiness is a great risk to your own sense of yourself. It's a lot to think about. You have to forget who you are in order to be happy or to do anything wholeheartedly. You have to forget who you are to be really happy or to be able to do things wholeheartedly. Often, what you might think of as yourself is a list of problems and achievements, particularly problems. Without a problem, you wouldn't need anything. You could lose your citizenship in the society of people who need things. If you have a problem, you need closure or revenge or to understand your mother or to have your partner meet your needs. Yet most of these things are extremely unlikely to occur. And not one of these things would bring happiness if it did occur for very long. Anyway, it goes on. It's just, um, I just like the bodiness of the story. It's just like our lives, and we have our own version of the bucket and the doorway and the encounters, all of that. So we're a little over halfway through Youngman Junction. We have uh, one more whole day tonight and a little bit on Sunday morning. So, as a result of what we've already done and anything that might have inspired us, we have to make a little plan for ourselves for the rest of the time. And um, I'll tell you just a little story of mine. It took place almost at my first, I think it was my, maybe my second or third young man junction. And it was in the old house at 46 Gwyn. And there were about, it was a small meditation room. It's about the size of that room there. And we ran upstairs to Sunim for our interviews. And he asked us to run really fast. You know, not just slowly, you have to come as fast as you possibly can. So when it was people's turn, they would race out of the room and run up the stairs. And sometimes people ran so fast that it seemed like they flew up and everybody laughed in the meditation room because we could hear it big time. And then we'd get up and there would be Sunim sitting, quite severe. And uh, so my turn, I went up and uh, 
uh, I've been to quite a few interviews with him, and he, uh, he asked me, you know, how I was doing. And usually I said, fine, okay. But my knee had been really killing me. So I said to him, my knee has been really killing me. And there was a little pause, and then he showed it me. Pour the coal on the fire! Rang the bell, and I ran out. <laughs> I went down the stairs, went in the door, and I went to my place in the corner where the candle shone so that I could see my shadow in that place. And I thought, what the hell did that mean? <laughs> Pour the coal on the fire. <laughs> and so... My practice at that time, if I remember correctly, was Namu, N-A-M-U, it's going for refuge. Namu, Buddha, Dharma Sangha. So I had been say, repeating Namu, Namu. Trying. That time I didn't know so much about body mind, so it was more just my Namu, Namu, Namu up here. And um, I thought, well, or the coal on the fire must mean I should get things hotter. You know? So maybe I have to really heat up this practice. You know? and it's a, really get it, you know, the flames of uh, delusion burning, <laughs> so to speak. You know, and so I did. I was really determined that for the rest of the evening and the next day, we were at about the same stage in Yangman Junction that I would just really get take Namu every single possible place I could take it and not stop doing it. Okay? But in later years, and this is maybe almost 40 years later, pour the coal on the fire comes to me as, what is most skillful for me to do right now? What's the wisdom? Maybe it is to just go to sleep and not do extra practice. Maybe it is to just soften out with my practice. Do something that's completely different than I'm going to do better. I want to be more controlled and perfect. You know? So when I offer this, pour the coals on the fire to you, I'm offering it with the hope that you'll take your own wisdom of what's really good for you and help you, what will help you with this practice that you're working on within your body centered around your heart right now. It might be to sit on a chair. Recently, I thought we should have a nice little couch in here so somebody could lie down on a couch for practice. You know? It's not that everybody has the same abilities, and we need to uh, remember that. So I like you right now. It's, I don't know exactly what time it is. What time is it? About 8 o'clock. 8.30, that story took quite a long time. So you've got at least an hour and a half left. Now, how am I going to be a real sincere practitioner and, you know, do the best I can do where I am right now? Okay? Okay. 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 <laughs>
Some people are just a little bit hesitant. Okay! Because when you make plans for yourself, please do not underestimate how good you are and how much energy you still have. Even though there may be things, you know, your back, your foot, whatever, there's still really a lot that you have that you can work with with your practice. And this is the time. Everything you've done so far is building up to now, and so it will be as you keep on this pilgrimage. 